Hey, this is Felix. Uh, we're doing something exciting. We haven't done it in a little bit. Uh, coming up, we have a great episode with uh, Derek Davison and Daniel Bessner about foreign policy, the future of the U.S. and EU's relationship, the future of NATO, a little Saudi Arabia stuff. But before we get there, I uh, want to tell you guys about a new thing that me and Matt are doing. It's called Time for My Stories, and it is the history of the American TV drama. In our opinion, the 20 most essential American TV dramas and the arc of the American empire through these dramas and through the times that these dramas came out. Do you want to know how Friday Night Lights relates to the Telefar offensive? Well, we actually don't do that, but there's a lot of stuff. You can hear our absolutely crackpot theories on Gossip Girl. You can hear us finally talk about The Sopranos. And you can hear us talk about the greatest show of all time, The Shield. But for Patreon subscribers, we have something exciting. You can type in CHOPPO to get uh, 50% off an annual Stitcher premium plan. And if you don't think that's a big deal, you want to kill me, you hate me, you want to murder me, well, you can listen to Blowback with that too. So fuck you. Thank you. Please subscribe at stitcher.com slash premium and I'll include the link to the show. Hey everyone, it's been a while since we had one of these, but I am delighted to welcome back uh, Derek Davison and uh, Daniel Bessner. Hey guys, hey Felix, hey Danny. Thanks for having us, hey everybody. Our pleasure, we're, uh, we're, we're, we're due for another foreign policy, for another around the world. It's uh, the start of Biden's America and going great so far. In the international stage, almost as well as the domestic. <laughs> yeah, no complaints here. No uh, complaints. So we're gonna get we're gonna get to some uh, golf stuff later. But I I thought I would start off with something we don't talk about that often on this: the European Union and NATO. Um, in December of last year, uh, China and the EU inked a very big trade deal. China already has market share of a lot of things in the EU, but this would be, yeah, the biggest trade deal they've ever done. I don't think it's quite finalized yet, but I would kind of be shocked if it doesn't end up there. Also, I mean, we're having our own problems with the EU. Uh, I've seen a lot of American press, specifically like the Atlantic, and then when you get like an FDD adjacent guy writing for foreign policy, sort of blaming Trump for this, saying that it's uh, Trump harmed our relations with the EU. But this, what I'm about to say, it feels inevitable. Biden has been unable to get the EU to pull back from China, and they're not just going to toss out this fucking trade deal. Definitely not. Yeah, absolutely not. And I think this is probably one of the biggest moments in the EU or, or NATO's history, because what essentially is happening is that China has for a while been attempting to build what might be termed an alternative world order. And, and really through the creation of institutions like the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank and um, the Belt and Road Initiative, even though she is sort of pulling back on that. But they're they're essentially trying to create a counter hegemonic 
world order and getting a deal with is which is really hard of the uh, uh, with the countries that comprise the heart of, of the north atlantic imperial order which has been governing the world for 500 years would be a significantly major coup um the difference though is that um china i don't think and and derek and felix you guys might disagree i don't think they have quite world spanning ambitions in the same way as the united states has world spanning ambitions you just look at base uh, you know, bases. They've got one in Djibouti. Maybe they've got one or two in Pakistan that we don't know about. But um, they don't really have world-spanning ambitions. So this is really a story about what is the EU going to do in, in what I am beginning to think of as the post-post-Cold War era. Like the last 30 years have were really responding to the logics, to the power relations of the Cold War. I think we're finally seeing new arrangements in international mm -hmm. politics, of which this is one important representative. Um, and just before I shut up, um, India is going to be really critical here, because I think what China is trying to do is trying to shore itself up against India, which is trying to uh, move into basically China's belly uh, in, in the PRC's south. I, I think you're right. I think that the, there's no indication to me that the Chinese government has ambitions to be this world bestriding colossus that the United States has tried to be. Uh, I think that what the, what they want is to establish themselves as one of the, you know, three or four or five major players in a multipolar world. And, and I think, um, frankly, that's what the EU is trying to do. And that's, that's why, you, you know, you see a, a deal like this because the EU is trying to position itself for a day when, uh, the United States no longer, or when, when the United States sort of recognizes, I guess, that it is no longer the world's only superpower and that the the, the dynamic has shifted. Um, and the Europeans, more than ever, I think, feel that, especially after uh, the last four years, kind of feel, you know, like they need to establish themselves in an independent sense, uh, kind of apart from the United States. Um, you know, when you, uh, Felix, when you, uh, you know, said you wanted to do this episode and you wanted to talk about Biden's foreign policy, I started thinking like back to Trump because of course, like we're still so early on, it's hard to kind of think about what Biden is doing and not, you know, kind of compare him to, to what we've been through. And the first thing that popped into my mind just randomly, uh, was Trump's first NATO meeting in 2017. I don't know if you guys remember this, but like yeah. the big thing at that NATO meeting was they were, you know, bringing Montenegro into NATO. And there was this, there's this video of Trump. They're like, all the leaders are like getting ready to like do their uh, big group photo. And there's this video of Trump, like, coming up behind the, the prime minister of Montenegro and just like bodying him out of the way, just like grabbing him and shoving him <laughs> out of the way so that he yeah. could be in the front of the, of the picture. And like, you know, that's like the, the, the bar for Biden with re respect to U S Europe relations has been set so low. Like if he doesn't, you know, give uh uh, give Boris Johnson a titty twister. Like we're, we're going to be like in better shape uh, than we were. But I think, you know, just that, that period kind of woke the Europeans up a little bit to the idea that, Hey, you know, maybe the United States is not what it was. And, and we have to be prepared for like the next Donald Trump, or we even, even if we're not prepared for the next Donald Trump, we have to be prepared for, uh, you know, our, our, the, the hegemon of this last era to, to go into decline. 
I think that's exactly right. And and I think that NATO is is really critical here because NATO is really a product of the Cold War. It's founded in April uh, 1949. And the famous quote was uh, to keep the Americans in, to keep the Germans down and to keep the Soviets out. Right. So it's very much an institution with a Cold War logic. And then you have this moment uh, when the when the Berlin Wall comes down, the Soviet Union collapses in, in, on Christmas 91. Uh, and there's a real question, is NATO going to continue? And I, I actually, for some perverse reason, have been reading a lot of these early 90s foreign policy discussions. And on all sides of the political spectrum, there are people who are arguing that it's really time to come home. We need to stop, you know, allowing Europe to free ride off of our security. Um, but of course, um, what winds up happening is that NATO continues and, and NATO continues to expand eastward into Eastern Europe. And this is this is a problem because um, I think there's pretty good evidence that the United States in, in, in 89 or 90, I forget exact uh, the exact date, actually promises the Soviet Union that NATO won't expand, uh, essentially, that that if this stops, then NATO will come home. So there's a, a lot of the sort of Putin revanchism is, I think, um, linked to this fundamental notion of betrayal that the United States promised this particular thing and it didn't wind up um, happening. But I think now this is what I would say, like the third critical turning point uh, of NATO. Is it going to continue? to uh, do basically act as it's acted in, in Europe in the indefinite future. And I think that Europe is recognizing that, no, it's probably not going uh, not going to do that. And Biden, though, a caretaker administration, the Biden administration, a caretaker administration, um, is, I think, going to begin this process of basically pulling U.S. money out of Europe slowly but surely over the next four to eight years. I think there's a real question of, like, I mean, it's been a question since the end of the Cold War, but like, what is NATO's purpose now? I mean, the only missions that NATO undertakes, I mean, you can talk about, you know, the the intervention in Kosovo or the intervention in uh, Libya, which was driven to some extent by, I think, a, a desire on the part of some NATO leaders to say, you know, we're still here. We're still, you know, we still, uh, we're still good. We're still good. Um, but you know, by and large, the the two. I mean, the things that that NATO does now are they go in after the United States goes in somewhere, like they go into Iraq, they're in Afghanistan, and they do like training, while the United States mm-hmm. does the you know airstrikes and the policing work. Uh, NATO forces come in and they do training, and and you know th- this leads to. Uh, absurd scenarios where, you know, you've got like the German parliament voted the other day to extend Germany's deployment in Afghanistan until I think 2023 or 2022. I can't remember. Uh, there's no way the German forces in Afghanistan will stay there if the United States withdraws. Uh, but there's this like paper thing where like we're not bound by the United States. We're not, you know, uh, responsive to that. Uh, but but they can't, you know, they, they can't maintain security for themselves in these places without the United States. And I think, you know, that's a that's a question that that, you know, has to be um, you know, at the forefront of of some of these European deliberations, like how long can we, you know, continue to be the backup band for the United States and and just sort of outsource our security and, and to uh, to the U.S. military? Is that a sustainable model? I don't think it is, and I don't think NATO. You know, again, uh, my question is why is this thing still in existence? Uh, it's become a crutch, I think, for a lot of European countries, and it's you know outlived its vastly outlived whatever purpose it may have had at one time. Yeah, and um, with you know, no one really remembers this, but do you remember in 2017 when Trump was gushing over Xi for a little bit, and then <laughs> yeah, uh, in the final two years of his presidency, he started taking a more 
hardline, if not erratic approach to China. But with Trump, you know, I mean, with a lot of Trump things, it's hard to nail down sort of a linear path or coherent worldview. But the closest I can get to it is that there's a de-emphasis on NATO because, you know, he could hit on his cam- one of his points from the campaign that, you know, we had a bad deal going. Germany was paying like 1.28% when they should have been paying at least 2% into NATO. Only nine countries were paying the minimum. But uh, the emphasis was going to go off NATO and towards containing China. And to that end, I found some pretty funny writings throughout the last 18 months about the block of four. This about like a oh, the sort quartet, of infor- yeah. Yeah, yeah in for or the quad, the quad, uh, the right. informal, the informal replacement to NATO, and uh, I mean, yeah, no, NATO is. I would be shocked if it lasts another decade, right? I mean, that was pretty recently when Macron gave that interview where he was just like, "Yeah, if Syria, if Syria and Turkey, if, if that escalates." what we have to invade Syria to defend Turkey. I, I, I personally hate Turkey. I don't yeah. get, I don't yeah. Get I mean, the, the problem with stupid. Turkey, which is probably the second most important country in NATO, aside from the United States or the second most kind of critical uh, member at this point, uh, you know, and, and right. They've got like almost open hostility with like five other members of NATO and it's, yeah. it's really untenable. And that gets into a whole nother kind of thing. That's, that's outside uh, the specific, I think range of us foreign policy. I mean, it's, it's obviously tangential to that. Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, the, there are tensions all over that Alliance. It's not just the United States, although I think that's the biggest kind of, uh, overarching issue for them. Yeah, and I think something that's really going to um, take hold in the next few years is that literally the cold warriors who occupy these positions are going to die or retire. And so you're yeah. going to have a new generation of people, basically 40 and younger, who don't have the emotional attachment to NATO that people who grew up in the height of the Cold War did. I think a lot of the uh, Washington foreign policy, particularly in the establishment precincts, is literally just inertia and literally just people um, uh, applying ideas from the 1980s and 1970s. And I, this is what I think the, the new era is so interesting because I think those Structures are going to finally change. And Turkey is, you know, the perfect example, a, a, a country that was for decades kind of geared toward uh, Europe has in the last few years kind of os- os- uh, oscillated between gear, uh, trying to present itself as like the leader of the Islamic world, then going back to Europe, then cutting off relations with Israel, then restarting relations with Israel. And so I think that sort of schizophrenia is going to define a lot of the foreign policy in the coming years. Um, and I think that's going to just inevitably what what's going to happen when the United States essentially begins to reduce its security commitments, particularly within the rich North Atlantic area. Yeah. I mean, the insanity of like taking a Cold War framework with China specifically is, I mean, just going back a little like China, they don't really seem to have territorial ambitions on par with us historically or even with the USSR. I mean, they do extract wealth from other countries, but it's, you know, they do it in a more European way. They don't set up bases there, but, you know, you can get a lot done with foreign investments with just building a factory somewhere. They don't want to like build a Burger King that lasts a hundred years. Like, no, they're not interested in winning hearts and minds at all. I mean, they they primarily, 
They don't give a shit at all. I mean, they primarily employ Chinese workers, which is actually why you see Xi kind of retreating a little bit because mm-hmm. there's actually been resistance amongst like the the, the global south uh, to what the China's development projects because it essentially benefits only uh, Chinese companies and Chinese capital. Um, but this is also what's freaking out Americans. I, I recently read Bob Gates' book and he's so freaked out about Chinese development because they essentially could direct capital in a way that the United States can't, even though one of the uh, things that Trump did was basically create a private development uh, fund uh, from the United States to, to fund all these private development groups. So the, trying to channel it, but I just don't think China has those ambitions. The ambitions it has is to be super hegemonic in East Asia, which yeah. is going to bring it up against India and it's going to bring it up against the United States. And I think this is the largest division in the so-called like progressive community that is within the beltway. There are people who want to basically see the U S retreat from East Asia. And there are people who essentially want it to be there forever. And it's archipelago of bases surrounding the Eastern side of the PRC. And I think that's going to be the big debate in foreign policy in the next Mm -hmm. 20 years is what does the U S do in East Asia? Does it foster a security transition or does it try to remain dominant there itself? That's going to be a lot of disagreement. And that's going to scramble a lot of political ideas, too, especially given now that you guys know Blinken just announced that like the first uh, two years of Carter, human rights are back on the agenda, i.e. the Uyghurs uh, are going to be a big, a big thing in the, in, in the coming years. Yeah, the, the Uyghurs. And I mean, we're we're running again for a seat on the U.N. Human Rights Council, although I find it uh, like morbidly hilarious that like Trump quit like pull the US out of the human rights council because it was supposedly excessive you know obsessively focused on Israel and now the you know Blinken and Biden administration announced we're going to try to we're going to run for a seat on the human rights council again and what are we going to do when we get there we're going to try to counter its obsessive focus on Israel so this is like the whole this is the human rights issue of our time is how the human rights council deals with uh, with Israel and you know successive administrations i can just imagine like every 4 years the united states like quitting and then rejoining and then quitting and rejoining always for exactly the same reason each time and it's kind of just ridiculous two radical theories of change you know? <laughs> Donald Donald Trump says you cannot deconstruct the you cannot tear down the master's house with the master's tools. The U.N. Security Council, uh, you know, Joe Biden believes in changing it from the inside. He's a reformist. Two radicals who I both love. <laughs> it's it's really true. And and that kind of just leads me to the general point that, Derek, I know you and I have talked about this a few times, which is just the general exhaustion of liberal foreign policy. In a, in a column that I wrote for Foreign Exchanges, I called like liberal internationalism a zombie ideology because no one really mm-hmm. believes in it anymore. If, if you think since 1945, liberal foreign policy has had two tracks. One was the developmentalist track, which is that we'll develop the world and they'll all become modern like the United States. That's clearly bullshit, even though that was the one that dominated in the 60s and the 90s. 1990s. It made Jeff Sachs go crazy. Yeah, he he, he was, he was <laughs> he a dollar a day, right? Yeah, he, he he was like, "Fuck this!" Right, right. And so this was like that's like a big. This has been a promise for a hundred years. So that yeah. that project is dead. And so the only other side that liberalism really had, and I mean like capital L liberalism, not like Democrat and Republican, but the ideology that guides American foreign policymakers is clean warfare. And that's what we're seeing now. We're seeing a return to sanctions. We're seeing uh, a, an explosion in drones uh, strikes. So we're having this idea that we're able, we're going to be able to govern the world humanely. But the problem is like developmentalism, no one really believes the, the, the next generation doesn't really believe that this is a successful tact for governing the world in any meaningful way. So what I think we're going to see is this sort of haphazard 
ad hoc retreat from the world in like certain areas. One president will do this. The next president will do that. And it's going to just be very strange. And because the ad hoc, totally uncentrally planned nature of it, it's going to cause a lot of misery and deracination throughout the world. I think you're already seeing something like that, actually, in specifically the realm of sanctions. Like the United States has moved away from under a lot of criticism has moved away to some extent from these sort of general sanctions that we now know do tremendous damage to people in Venezuela and Iran all over the place. You know, wherever we've imposed them, it's it's led to misery. Uh, And now we do these like very highly targeted sanctions which leads to these like kind of laughable situations where like you know we're we're blacklisting the deputy head of the Myanmar Air Force so he can't come to the US and like go to Disney World or something like he can't get a visa <laughs> like who cares that that doesn't do anything except like you know kind of make it look like you're you're doing something to address uh, malign situations around the world. It doesn't actually achieve anything, uh, but it uses the same sort of rhetoric of sanctions uh, in kind of this ineffectual way. And I, I think it, it, you know, represents kind of a, a a step toward this future where the United States really doesn't, you know, doesn't have the the same kind of juice to to kind of uh, affect the rest of the world. And that's why I think we're in a moment and what I call in an article I wrote about Call of Duty imperialist realism, right? Because the obvious solution is to retreat, right? The, the, all the projects have failed. The United States can't govern the world that it said, in the way that it said it was going to govern since 1945. But no one is able to just – or at least the people who wield power who want to make careers in these institutions, they're not able to literally say we just need to come home. So we're in this very strange moment where no one believes in the project anymore, but no one's advocating the actual solution, which is to close one of the 750 bases. You know, it's absolutely ridiculous. So we find ourselves like I I would actually say much of our politics in this very uncomfortable stasis. That is, of course, a feeling that has only been um, heightened by the pandemic. And literally, we're all living, have been living in stasis for at least a year. I mean, to that end, like with reactionary foreign policy, I feel like I know the future of that. It's just going to look like the past like 10, 20 years, kind of. I mean, there might be some paleoconservative tilts in some ways, but those are sheerly rhetorical. It's going to be like a mix of some neoconservative policies and ideologies with like hard Zionism, this like weird international, this right international that has popped up. It's, yeah. Like UN, the UN watch guy will become secretary of state, even though I'm pretty sure he's an Israeli. Uh, It it will. Yeah, you can tell what it's going to look like. But yeah, foreign policy progressivism, that's who knows where that's going to go, because, you know, I, I would like to think that some people who are like maybe closer to our age, not Tony Blinken's age, maybe. Hopefully they can tell the writings on the wall times up, but I always think people will be able to see that, but they never seem to be able to. And I feel like for like, you know, for the future Tony Blinkens, for the people who are just, you know, eating shit now so they can have that job later there, it's going to be a Tony Soprano thing. You know, why did I have to get in on the end of this? I'm just going to act like it's not ending. 
I, I think there's a lot there. Uh, and one of the big issues, though, uh, of course, is that when the United States approaches the world, it's not just approaching it like a game of, you know, Axis and allies. There, mm-hmm. There's these profound interests in the do- American domestic scene that really want to support, you know, American imperialism. And I think that the most profound example of that is that last summer, most Democrats refused to reduce the defense budget by 10 percent. And that's because they have significant constituencies um, within their districts that basically want the military industrial complex to continue. Just like there's that what, what historians call the military intellectual complex, like all these think tanks, these think tanks don't exist. You don't have a career unless the United States is running around the world. So there's these profound domestic constituencies, not to mention defense contractors, which spent, I think it was over a hundred million on, on lobbying, you know, the last time we have statistics for that are basically devoted to ensuring that this lumbering colossus just keeps on lumbering around the world. And that's a profound political problem because most Americans don't vote on foreign policy and there are highly organized constituencies that want to keep this going. And I don't know how like the left, which just suffered an enormous defeat is, is going to, I mean, I'm just at a loss. I want to say, I don't know how mm-hmm. one really challenges that it's, it's an enormous problem. I don't know if you guys have any, have any thoughts or solutions. I mean, I, I think it's, I think Felix is, is right to some extent. It's just going to lumber along. Like I, I, I sometimes mm-hmm. wonder uh, how how much of U.S. foreign policy making for the next, let's say, ten years, while you can still kind of uh, pretend that everything is the way it always has been, um, it is going to be devoted not to actual foreign policy making, but to like messaging the empire to a domestic audience, like, and that's you know that's where things like uh, you, you know the the sudden. Uh, interest in the Uyghurs come from comes from because that's that's you can tug at people with that and you know if you uh, really dig into the like more outlandish stories of what's happening there you you, you really get uh, you can you can spin a very horrific narrative about what's going on and uh, you know I I I I think the the focus has has shifted and I, I mean I guess you know the Iraq War is sort of the uh, maybe the last time that the foreign policy establishment just says, you know, fuck this, we're doing it and, you know, deal with it. Uh, Cause I think the, the backlash to that has, has maybe uh, kind of caused some people to, to see that a lot of their effort needs to go into not so much maintaining the empire as justifying it to, uh, to the domestic audience. Yeah. I, the worst of all possible outcomes is we're just going to be the sick man of the entire world. And that could go on. That could go on for two hundred years, because, I mean, there's just always going to be people who don't want it to end or don't want to admit that it's over. And I'm thinking now, like, did you guys see that thing in the in the last week? How the EU uh, they sanctioned Russia and Venezuela? And I, I mean, I gotta figure that's either them keeping up appearances or it's like Joe or more likely Blinken was like, all right, you got to give us something here what can we actually do to the EU? Like, what can we actually do that would make them entice them to not continue with China or just go back to relying on us entirely for defense? Yeah. I don't, I don't think there's anything. Um, yeah. I, I I don't think there is anything the United States can do again, even if you, um, even if the, the Biden administration, you know, kind of, perfectly glued the US European relationship back together and and this is a relationship that's been fracturing you know before Trump 
mm-hmm. um, you know, for for many many reasons. But even if Biden somehow pieced it all back together, and I don't think he's uh, able to do that. Uh, but if he did, you would still have to say, you know, if you're um, Emmanuel Macron, if you're whoever winds up as the next chancellor of Germany, um, you would still have to say, you know, what happens the next time, you know, when when they elect the, you know, the head of uh, or when Gina Carano, I said Gina Carano the, the uh, last chapel thing, what, what happens when President Carano is elected in 2024 or whatever? <laughs> Uh, and and just takes the country down that same path again. Like we, it's just not reliable anymore. And I, I think, to some extent, that was kind of pulling away the curtain. Uh, you know, I don't think Trump created the, a situation where Europe can't rely on the United States anymore. So much as he just kind of re, you know woke people up to that reality. But I think now that it's out there, uh, it's it's hard to kind of stuff that back uh, under the rug. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he himself did a shitty job at it, but it's like him doing a shitty job just exposed that this is like actually a very bad system for running a country and especially for running a global empire. Like, why why would you make a deal with the country where it's like, oh, yeah, no, the guy we said would never win won. Whoops. <laughs> yeah, they, they can't trust it. Um, But it'll be interesting to see because I do think the United States is going to continue to shove money throughout the world. And you've seen over the last 30 years, basically mercenaries return in a way that they haven't been seen since like Gustavus Adolphus. You know, uh, and so I think that you're going to see more and more of these private security firms begin to essentially replace uh, a lot of the traditional security functions of a lot of these nation states that basically people will do like a year or two in a national military and then they'll join some sort of transnational security firm, which I, I think leads to a larger analytical problem that I don't think we have a good answer on, which is how do these security structures and logics interact with the basically the flows of global capital and how do they reinforce each other and how do they make each other stronger and how do they depart from each other and to me this is going to be one of the you know if you're a genuine anti-imperialist you, you need to basically do a power map and figure out where are the points of weakness in this like incredibly sinuously sinuous uh, structure that that has been governing the world for the past 30 years where the united states has essentially since the all-volunteer uh, force in 73, but really since the end of the Cold War, has begun to devolve its responsibilities to private security firms, which I think complicates all of these things. And it, it like mirrors the 30 years war more than anything else. Yeah, no, Trump accidentally created the national champions model. <laughs> he accidentally created dangism. And now uh, we're going to reinvent the Dutch East India Company, but there will be a thousand of them. Great. I mean, what it seems like the only fix for that would just be to make them completely illegal. But it's like that is the king of that is the king of easier said than done. Yeah, I was just going to say, because that would mean like Samantha Powers kid is going to have to defend the empire. Right. And believe me, that'll never happen. Uh, So this is and you see it very similarly in in police assistance, too. Right. Mm -hmm. These are all private firms that that are like American police just going out and selling these things. And so you you would need like basically an international legal code enforceable by something that is going to be able to contain basically private security firms. That's not happening. That's going to suck. I'm thinking back to this sort of normie Democrat I used to know. He, uh, We were arguing about the F-35 once, and he was like, 
yeah, I know it sucks, but it's like, I mean, sucks is a plane, but like, this is the only thing we make. And now it's like, we won't even be able to make that anymore. Like the air force just sort of like quietly, shamefully admitted like, yeah, no, we don't. That thing doesn't work. (laughs) the, The further, the further we degenerate, we're not even going to make good planes anymore. And the only thing we'll, we'll export is like, yeah, guys with Punisher tattoos. And it will be the same argument. It will be the same argument. It's like, we can't stop doing this because it's like, well, they'll just buy the Russian ones or they'll buy, yeah, they'll buy like the Colombian guys that they fucking sent to uh, Yemen. And this is the only thing we make. And and this is what's kind of just weird when you think about the American state is that it essentially enforces these pseudo private monopoly. I mean, private monopolies where they're they're entire contract is the U.S. government and Saudi Arabia. So I think there's like fundamental issues with the actual construction of the American imperial state that need to be just totally demolished. That, you you know, a defense contractor should maybe be a government organization as opposed to Raytheon. You know, these were actually once live questions that we've just totally given up on. So I think like what we could really begin to do, particularly because, like, frankly, we're out of power and we're not going to be able, you know, Bernie lost. We're really not going to be able to, to affect things, I think, in a real way. We could begin to start asking these large structural questions and really raising them for people going forward. What what should 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 private arms manufacturers be a thing? Should mercenaries be a thing? Aren't these the proper responsibilities of a state? And that should go along with the type of welfareist M4A type of projects because they're really one and the same because they're asking fundamental questions about the American state and its future. Yeah. And unfortunately, that's another thing where I think, you know, Lockheed Martin will possibly outlast the United States as a coherent, cohesive political entity. (laughs) Dutchie Cindy Company, you know, yeah. it's, it's a pseudo state yeah. acting yeah. in the name of a yeah. state. Um, that's really what is happening right now. That's who's fighting America's wars around the world. Yeah. Well, good times ahead. So just closing out the sort of NATO EU discussion, I wanted to get back to the quad, which is uh, this sort of the counterweight that they thought of to China, the new NATO, informal NATO kind of, which is Australia, India, Japan and us. I've I've seen some great FDD articles about how good this is. Um, <laughs> why why is this doomed? Because um, it's such a bad idea. Yeah, I mean it's the quad is uh, the Australia and Japan are almost superfluous. Really, the quad is part of a long standing project among the the folks who are constantly warning about it warning about slash hoping for a cold war with China. Uh, they feel like th- there's a, there's a, a feeling that India is somehow like the secret weapon, like the United States secret weapon here, because uh, they've always loved that, you know, the, <laughs> right. I mean, India, you know, basically because it's another very large Asian country. Uh, I don't, I don't know beyond that, like what the, but the, you know, so the idea being that, you know, if the United States can improve its ties with India and draw India into this, kind of, uh, you know, antagonistic relationship. I mean, India already has historically an antagonistic relationship with China, uh, but that, you know, we could use India as our, our secret weapon to undermine uh, China. And it's, it's. Um, I mean, I, I think, you know, the, the failure, you know, comes from the fact that there's, there's nothing coherent that stitches these four countries together apart from, 
kind of a general feeling that we're all worried about China, but we're all worried about China in different ways. And everybody has their own concerns. And, and uh, you know, at any given time, like Australia has its own issues with China. Uh, they're, they're trying, I mean, they're trying to sell coal in China. They're trying to sell like manufactured goods in China. Uh, they're getting upset that China is like cutting off, cutting them off uh, economically. And, and, you know, I, I just, I don't think it's a coherent, uh, alliance, at least with NATO, you could make sort of uh, the case that when it was in its heyday, when it had a purpose, um, for the most part, its members members were all on the same page in many respects in opposing the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact. And, you know, there was even this kind of opposing organization or institution. I, I don't see that with with the Quad and maybe, you know, 50 years from now, if, if somehow that alliance hangs together, you'll have a, a, a stronger relationships. But I, I don't know. I don't I don't see it getting there. I view it in, in two distinct ways. I think particularly in the last like three, four years since Trump, you've seen a lot of discussion amongst like the liberal side of the foreign policy establishment about how India is like a large multiracial, multiethnic federalist democracy. So there's, a, I think, this sort of fetishization of India as being kind of equivalent to the United States that shapes these people's worldview. But on a, on the geostrategic level, it's essentially just clawing for a reason for of the United States' behalf to stay in East Asia. Because I think they're, they're mm-hmm. seeing the accommodation at South Korea, Japan, even Japan, Indonesia, even Australia are making towards essentially accepting Chinese regional hegemony. The country that's not going to do that is India, um, both because of Hindutva and Modi and his particular nationalist politics. Um, but also because India is a gigantic country and it's long felt that it, it should have been, you know, the civilizational um uh, do- dominator uh, of this region. So India becomes this um, potential linking point for the United States to basically maintain hegemony. I mean, I think it's doomed because I just think fundamentally the United States is not going to be able to maintain dominance in East Asia like it has since 1945. It's actually wild when you're in these like think tank discussions and you say something like that, people just don't accept it. They're like, that's not true. We'll just be able to be, we'll just build more bases. So there's like, uh, uh, it, it's it's something that it's not going to be answered with logic or facts or reason. It's an ideological belief that is essentially not going to be overcome by anything. Um, even though I agree with Felix, I think it's doomed um, from the start, but I think there's going to be a lot of money, a lot of weapons transfers, a mm-hmm. lot of, you know, most favored nation trade going on in the next 5, 10, 15 years between the U.S. and India before China does something. I think what's going to happen is China is going to like cross the strait of Taiwan at some point and just be like, what are you going to do about it? And then the United States is going to just do nothing and retreat. That's my prediction um, about what's going to happen in the region. If that happened, that might be the only thing that could dispel this just get people to the next stage of thinking the next stage of grief really yeah it's i mean it sort of would take a, a trigger a triggering event like that to kind of wake people up to the fact that like the united states is is basically talking a, a big game in east asia but it's not uh, there's no there there like there's no substance to it you know as, Dan, as daniel says if if china went into taiwan uh, I mean, I'm sure the United States would have a response to that, but it would not be to go to go to war. It would not be World War Three over Taiwan. That's just not going to happen. Uh, so if you call that bluff, uh, you know, it it could topple a lot of, uh, you know, I think uh, 
comfortable assumptions that people are making about the U.S. role in that part of the world. Um, I do think it's interesting that, you know, this the quad and, and the the fundamental kind of axis of the U.S. and India just puts the United States uh, in bed with yet another kind of, uh, you know, brutally repressive authoritarian uh, human rights, serial human rights violator, which is like the thing that has always been the tension on the liberal end of U.S. foreign policy is like, well, we have to deal with these unsavory characters for, you know, because they're uh, good allies, but we, you know, they're human rights abusers and you get the, you know, it happens in Saudi Arabia. It happened, it's happened across Africa over the, you know, uh, over the cold war. I mean, it was just, you know, happened in Latin America, certainly. Uh, and here we are, you know, sort of in this well removed from that period. And the United States is still doing it is still doing this, you know, uh, kind of dance where we say we're, uh, we care about human rights and yet, you know, look at the, the people we're working with. And of course, check out that old uh, Gene Kirkpatrick essay, Dictatorships and Double Standards, which is from the early 1980s and essentially argues that for peace and freedom, you need to support dictators. I just wanted to make one quick point. I think you could look at what China did with Hong Kong kind of as analogous to what Russia did with Georgia, preceding what Putin did with Ukraine and what China is likely to do with Taiwan. I think what, what it's been doing in Hong Kong is sort of testing the waters on what is like the, the, the West going to do in response. And I think, you know, the West didn't do anything i probably from my perspective a good, good thing not to do anything and and what we're going to have is just some sort of crisis cuban missile crisis-esque moment where the united states is just going to retreat in some glamorous uh horrible fashion yeah and then that will be like i'd say for about like two presidential election cycles the republican candidates will go oh we would have Taiwan would still be its own country if we were there. Well, sure. Look or, 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 or if it's another like shitty, you know, if we have another Trump, like you can just get the NATSEC Dems going like, oh, we would have we would have finally offered Europe something and they would have prevented this with us. <laughs> right. I mean, look how long the, the narrative of uh, who lost China, like, you know, permeated yeah. American politics uh, after the communist takeover. I mean, that that was. Uh, and just a ridiculous concept, like the United States lost China. Like, what the hell are you talking about? But that was a that was a big, you know, uh, kind of seminal thing in U.S. politics for a long time. That's the reason we fought the Cold War. The Soviets got the bomb and the next month we lost China. I think if those two things didn't happen within basically a month of each other, the Cold War would have turned. And then you have Korea, which institutionalized it. But the Cold War would have turned about it differently. So these crisis moments are actually really critical to kind of putting putting things on institutional paths. And I think the moment we're in now is equivalent to like between 1945 and 1949, where there's not a structure, but you see things moving in a particular direction. And I think you see people really, really playing up the new Cold War with China. It's in, it's wild how that's been embraced by all sides of the political spectrum so quickly, came out of nowhere, and it's just been become the governing logic for a lot of this geostrategy. I'm going to start a movement for people who... Uh are obviously not for the Cold War in China, but aren't like these weird Americans who are just like incredibly into China for some reason. <laughs> like people who've never, who've like never left like Inland Empire of California and are like, yes, dude, I, I got a form email back from the governor of Guangzhou. <laughs> I think Chapo should just sell out to China. <laughs> Shanghai Biederman. Well, that's like, I mean, like, if they're offering that, yeah, absolutely. Then I will get really into China. But I saw some like twenty-three-year-old ones post some picture of like all these regional leaders, and it was like 
They had some like dumbass millennial caption on it where they're like, yo, the energy in this pick. <laughs> it's so fucking lame. <laughs> it's so stupid. Uh, that like that really stuck with me. Uh, just it's like you just like play get into playing pool or something, like make Legos, do erector sets, <laughs> anything but this. So uh, we've hit about most of the things I want to touch on, but I'd like to wrap it up with the thing we usually start off with. Uh, Joe Biden releasing the report that names Mohammed bin Salman in the killing of. Uh, <laughs> Jamal Khashoggi, which, you know, as we know, is the only bad thing Saudi Arabia has ever done. Absolutely, yeah. That's, <laughs> that's yeah, the first innocent person they've killed. Well, they're picking, I mean, they're picking on on poor Mohammed bin Salman. He, he's in the, he was just in the hospital for appendicitis. And, and now we're going to dump on him, you know, on top of his health problems. It's just shameful to me. What is he, uh, like 33? I think you get appendicitis so. when you're a kid. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just assuming that I'm probably wrong, but uh, it feels like a child's disease. I hope. I hope <laughs> if they uh, they removed his appendix and then chopped it up and dissolved the pieces in, in a vat of acid, because that would really <laughs> the offending organ had to be punished. He's like Kim Jong Un, right? We don't really know his exact age for MBS. Yeah, I, I guess not. I mean, he's in his late 30s, I think. But yeah, 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 yeah. He's definitely a millennial. But it's like, yeah, it's weird. He's like one of the only, one of the only important heirs who like was never educated in America or Europe. But I mean, I guess like everyone else, you can just you know subpoena USC and be like, all right, what's his <laughs> yeah, what's this guy's deal? But, yeah, does Saudi educate its elites in in America as much as other countries? I, I actually don't know. Oh yeah, a ton, a yeah, ton. But they they do they used to do. I mean, they used to like. Very early on, they would send them to Egypt because that was like the only place in, in the Arab world where they really like thought that they had great teachers. And it started that's it was kind of the reason for the link between uh, the royal family and the Muslim Brotherhood is because all the great teachers from Egypt were Muslim Brotherhood sure, guys. Yeah. But you know, unfortunately, well, after Nasser took up. over and started repressing the Brotherhood, a lot of them went to not just Saudi. I mean, they went all over the Gulf and and took over. Yeah, as bureaucrats and teachers because they were actually educated, and you know, a lot of the, yeah. the, the the Gulf folks. I mean, this was just at the beginning of the uh, discovery of oil, basically. So they hadn't had the you know had that money for long enough to build yeah. any institutions. But yeah, no, they 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 send them to America a bit, and they were actually. It were, there were more Qataris at the school I went to, but I always thought it was weird. I mean, you know, Bintalal, uh, Awali Bintalal, the guy who owns Sure, the yeah, the, the richest, yeah. All the, well, he's not anymore, I guess, since they, like, imprisoned him and made him, everything. <laughs> made him pay, pay to get released yeah. from the, the jail yeah, or the well, hotel. He, like, he went to some fucking weird place I've never heard of called University of Menlo Park. And then it's like, I went, you know, I went to, like, a small like jesuit university and yeah for people who don't know like saint paul geography there's this like neighborhood around where i went to school called summit it's where f scott Fitzgerald lived it's like really beautiful and like massive sprawling mansions very old ones been around for a while just beautifully constructed and the qatari and saudi students would just like rent one for themselves to be there for like two semesters <laughs> i remember like like a, there was a circle of golfy students smoking once and you know how like 
everywhere now it's like, oh, you have to smoke like 15 feet from the door. This like poor woman, like administrator or something came out and was like, hey, can you guys like move a little bit farther from the door? And they all just like glared at her, shuffled away, and then spit on the ground because a woman had told them what to do. <laughs> it's so awful. I actually had a question for you guys, just because I think you know more about the Middle East in terms of regional expertise. To me, as an outsider, it does think it does seem like the dialectic between Arab nationalism and sort of the Islamic reaction has kind of petered out. But yeah. it doesn't seem that there's any what what is there to replace it? Global capitalism? That doesn't seem like that's going to be a very effective sort of governing logic. So the Middle East, to me, just generally speaking, also seems like an area that's stuck in this zombie sort of static position. And we're all waiting for what something to come next, even though we have no idea what it's going to be. I mean, I think there are two things that are replacing it, but they're more like one that's already obviously been there quite a long time. And another that, yeah, not really built to last because it's based on something that's not built to last. I mean, the first one was just going to be like sort of an Islamic duopoly where it's like people will fall, fall along like, yeah, Sunni and Shia lines in a lot of places, not universal to the region, but that'll be the story in a few places. But the other thing sort of linked to that will just be like, which, you know, which pole of the world are you, are you aligning that with? Like, are you with like the sort of Gulfy Sunni alignment? Are you with sort of like the, Shia, like vague axis of resistance alignment. Are you part of a like a Sunni movement that's more associated with Qatar? Are you one more associated with Turkey? And it's, I mean, these are all like very they're tenuous alliances based on tenuous alliances that I don't really think are going to last that long. And it's ripe for something. Yeah, and especially because the nation state was just like put on the region. Yeah. That it's like that fundamental political organization, I think, is very, very interesting in that region. It might not be suited to it given historical patterns of governance. And so I think that'll be interesting to see how that shakes out going forward, particularly if the United States genuinely retreats, which I do think it will from the Middle East. I think there's yeah, I a growing consensus that, that it's not going to be there. For, for very much longer. I'd say within five years, it actually is going to significantly retreat and just give money to Israel. That would be my guess. Significant money to Israel and parts of Saudi. Uh, there's, I mean, there's no pole, second pole now in the Arab world yeah. that has replaced like what Nasserism was for a lot of the, uh, the you know 20th century. Um, I mean, it is a, it is a Saudi dominated world. I think the Saudis have, gravitated a little bit in the direction of Arab nationalism rhetorically at least if you you know if you hear a lot of the um you know rhetoric around Iran for example it, it's increasingly like these Persians should stay out of Arab affairs basically so the Saudis have kind of taken that on to some extent um but there's no other poll I mean the only one that that even comes close is is Qatar and that's uh, you know, Qatar, as as wealthy as they are, they don't really have the juice to sustain a, a rivalry with Saudi Arabia in a in a serious way, and that's I think mm. part of the reason why you've seen the Qataris kind of gravitate toward Turkey, uh, which is the the new alliance and the new kind of 
polarization is is really more between Turkey and the UAE, and and there are a lot of layers to that. There's the you know sort of neo Ottomanism, if you want to call it that, of of Erdogan kind of redirecting Turkey's attention toward the Middle East. There's uh you know his his affinity and his you know his Justice and Development Party's affinity for the Muslim Brotherhood and and their kind of embrace of Islamism versus uh the Saudis, but more even the UAE, which is kind of driving things ideologically, I think, uh, you know, kind of in the direction of, uh, I hesitate to say secularism because there's a, a Western connotation that that brings, uh, but but a, certainly a less kind of overtly Islamist style yeah. of politics. But it's not yeah. it's not within the Arab world. It's it's really, uh, you know, it's it's more Turkey and. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> Israel is source, a source of the best tourists in the region. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're increasingly a, an ally of convenience for all these places. Mm-hmm. It was set against, uh, really set against Iran as the sort of uh, regional bad guy for everybody, the boogeyman. Mm-hmm. You know, which is is you know to the extent that the Palestinian cause has ever had any salience in the Arab world it's it's going to be gone after this this generation of leadership uh passes i mean and i i say this generation i mean when when king salman dies and mohammed bin salman takes over that will be the end of arab solidarity for the palestinians that's the the, the yeah. tenuous thing that that is still holding on to this kind of thing i mean you'll have like jordan which is almost a non-entity um, and and you'll have countries, you'll have governments like Syria and and uh, you know Iran who kind of embrace the Palestinian cause for other reasons. Um, but I think the sense of regional kind of solidarity with the Palestinians will be gone for the most part. Mark. So, do you think yeah. Israel will just continue to expand and expand into the West Bank? And, and, and I mean, what? Where? How does that end? Yeah, I think it ends with annexation. I mean, I, I don't think this. You know, th- this this like this idea that. Uh, the UAE has like stopped the annexation of the Jordan Valley with this the Abraham Accords that the Trump you know the Trump <laughs> negotiated. It's it's just fallacious. It's it's ridiculous. They agreed to uh, they agreed not to embarrass everybody. The Israelis agreed not to embarrass everybody by immediately annexing the Jordan Valley in the wake of this stuff. But they didn't agree to like perpetually. Uh, put a hold on that. I think it will come back up uh, and it, it may not take, uh, it, you know, they, they may wait for another, uh, you know, sort of obsequious American administration, which, uh, you know, w- w- you know, somebody along the lines of Trump who is just like, so uh, enthralled to whoever's running Israel, whether it's Netanyahu or somebody else. Uh, but I, I think it's definitely going to come back. And, and what you'll probably see, you know, at the end of that is, an Israel that encompasses most of the valuable, useful land of the West Bank. Uh, and you'll see an, a whole bunch of Gazas in the West Bank, these disconnected, isolated communities uh, that ostensibly are part of some larger Palestinian thing, but they don't have any sovereignty. They don't control their own borders. They don't really control their own security. Uh, and, you know, they can be cut off and, and you know, brutalized basically at, at uh, Israel's whim. Like an archipelago of Ramallahs. Right, right. Mm-hmm. right. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's depressing. <laughs> so what do you see as being in store for like the future of uh, U.S.-Saudi relations? I mean, I 
I don't even think it's worth like bringing up Iran right now because why would they ever really make a deal with? Well, us the, I mean, the Iran thing I, is just a joke. Biden has yeah. has completely. Uh, he's almost at the point where he will have frittered away whatever window he had to to reengage the nuclear deal and and try and restart diplomacy. It's it's mind boggling to me that they've just kind of like sat on their hands about that. But yeah, it's it's not even almost not even what I mean, talking about. Yeah, he should have tried, but it's like I honestly like. I don't even think they were going to get anything done. Like, why would they ever make a fucking deal again? They can't, uh, I, not just, not just after like breaking the deal, but yeah, I think the moment that they killed Suleimani, it's like, nah, it's fucking done. We're like, that's lost for a generation. I mean, I think you could have gotten least. the Iranians back into the original deal by rejoining it, by taking the first step and saying, you know, this is, uh, this was wrong. We, we did the wrong thing and we're going to undo it. Uh, because they they do want sanctions relief. I mean, that's still a thing. Mm, yeah. Like it's still punishing uh, Iran badly, and and I think they would have. But but yeah, I mean, as far as like all the all this all these conditions about well, we but you know if we rejoin, it has to be under the condition that we're going to negotiate a bigger deal that covers these other areas, and the Iranians are going to do. There, there's nothing to compel the Iranians to do that, and and everything to argue against doing it. Uh, because you're just setting yourself up for the next Trump, basically, to to you know toss all that stuff in the trash. Um, and the only thing that 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 could overcome that would be to, in good faith, rejoin the 2015 deal, show the Iranians that the United States can be trusted. And I'm talking over a period of years, like not months or even one presidential administration. And maybe you know you get to a stage where. Uh, you can offer other enticements for for other concessions, but you, there's a there's su- such a deficit of trust in that relationship. There's no uh, no way you could do it in in quick succession. From yeah. an anti imperialist perspective, do you think Iran should get a bomb? <laughs> I I think they should I, have I, the I, same I, bomb that Israel has. Uh, yeah, the one yeah. that nobody talks about, and maybe there's a you know, I mean, in Israel, there's no doubt anymore that they have one. But the sort of strategic ambiguity of saying like maybe we do, maybe we don't. I don't know. Right. I don't know. Right. It's a really interesting question. I mean, I'm sure you guys have read the famous Kenneth Waltz piece. I think one of the ones before he died, saying that everyone should, you know, Iran should get the bomb, and pro- proliferation is actually a, a, a policy of a stability. So it's an it's an interesting thing to think about as a thought experiment from like the left. <laughs> I mean, I wish I you know despise nuclear weapons, uh, but I'm not going to say they should have one. I would say if I was them, I would really want one. Right, as as North Korea proved vis-a-vis Libya. Yeah, right? I mean yeah. those are yeah. that's what everyone's looking at essentially Libya versus North Korea. My, I, I think I think they're going to go hell bent on getting it. I mean, how I, I really don't see how you couldn't at this point. Yeah. So, Derek, you pointed to like yeah, first two years of Carter, and that's sort of what I'm feeling with the U.S. Saudi things that Biden's done so far. The MBS report, the p- pausing major weapon sales. I mean, for things that they really want, the Saudis really want. Um, they're already doing this where you know, Lockheed or Raytheon will just set up in Saudi Arabia and be like, this is a Saudi, you know, U.S. company or this is just Saudi company, whatever. But um, do you see any major movements happening? I, I don't I really do not. Yeah, I don't I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like um, I, I would like a lot more clarity than the administration has given on what the U.S. policy is in Yemen now. 
Um, yes. Because, you know, he, he made this announcement that we're ending support for offensive Saudi operations in Yemen, and we are uh, not going to sell them relevant weapon systems, like relevant to an offensive. What, is, what do those things mean? I don't know. Uh, you know, we're not going to give them intelligence on offensive actions, but we will on defensive actions. What does that mean? Uh, you know, they, they've been quick to say that we're going to maintain policies that help the Saudis defend themselves from drone strikes or uh, rocket attacks. So, I mean, does that include like striking a drone facility in Yemen or does that just include kind of uh, purely what we would think of as defensive operations? I don't know. Um, you know, and the answer to that could, says a lot about what the what the approach is going to be. I think moving forward, and I, I, I there's just there's a lot of ambiguity still in that for me. Yeah, I when it was first announced, my my thinking was uh, I would like to see the fine print here. It's um, on its face seems good, but yeah, as you said, it's worded in such a way that they could do. Probably about ninety five percent of the things they've been doing since twenty fifteen and be fine. Uh yeah, I just for fun, I like to do a thought experiment. You know, what if Biden freaked out and they did a looks like an accident thing to MBS? Which I don't even know if we it's in our capabilities anymore. I think I think they they would leave fingerprints everywhere. Just my like CIA is a bunch of peats right now, so I, I don't really think they could do that. But I was I was entertaining it just as a laugh. And it's like if you were Biden and you could could make it look like an accident, why not? I mean, if you were the US Empire, why not? MBS makes people think of Saudi Arabia. You don't like that. You have a guy who's very easily manipulated by the UAE, keeps doing stupid shit. You don't want that. I, I mean, I certainly think they would prefer that he not be next in line. But I, I mean, yeah. I, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't think there's a way that you could do it. As you know, you could take him out and and have yeah. it like uh, actually stick. And I, I, you know, I feel like there's probably a hope on some level in in some corners of kind of the liberal at least end of the U.S. foreign policy establishment that the family will step in. Uh, when King Salman dies, but, but they've taken so many steps uh, to like, just go after any potential rival he might have within the family. Yeah. I don't, uh, I don't think that's a, a, an option. And and that leaves, you know, just sort of like, again, a situation where you are stuck backing a serial human rights violator and bad actor. Uh, and you, you have to hope that nobody kind of uh, notices the contradiction. Yeah. Well, you could, I guess, arm the, the workers there. What about that? Arming the South Asian workers. Who I think <laughs> Joe Biden, Joe Biden will definitely be doing that. <laughs> Joe Biden, Joe Biden, is, Joe Biden is sending Naxalites to train, to train. There. <laughs> yeah, send, long- send a converted division of the U S army. <laughs> into Saudi Arabia. <laughs> I mean, that's like, all right, um, go beyond our make it look like an accident world. That's you know what we should be doing. But declare yourself caliph and go in. <laughs> he really would be the first white boy who did it. Then <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Well, as always, uh, great things to look forward to. Um, where can we find you guys? 
foreign exchanges, fx.substack.com. Uh, we've got, uh, yeah, my stuff and, and uh, Daniel's column, you know, which is, uh, and, and we just added uh, another contributor, Alex Thurston. Uh, I've got some more people uh, lined up, at least at least one more person lined up so far, and I'm working on more. Uh, so yeah, we're, we're growing and, uh, you know, people should, uh, come and check it out. Yeah. And I just want to emphasize foreign exchanges in like the professional foreign policy world. Like everyone is subscribed to it. It's the best daily digest on these things. And, uh, I think Amber mentioned it in the last chapter, but I don't know how Derek does this every yeah, day. It's no, an incredible really amount of really, really depressing, uh, depressing work. So you, you can find my writing there and, you know, if you want to on Twitter at D Bessner, um, but yeah, subscribe to foreign exchanges. It's, it's fantastic. Well, thank you guys so much. And I'm sure next time there is a lot of great things to look forward to. We will speak again. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Always, always good things to talk about. (laughs) Thank you guys so much. And we'll see you next Monday. Thanks. Thanks.